Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the LSE for this evening's event, co-hosted by the European Institute and Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies. We're here to discuss, a bit of advertising here, this book, Uncertain Futures, Imaginaries, Narratives, and Calculation in the Economy. He hasn't paid for it yet. <laughs> uh, so, and this book edited by Richard Bronk on the far right and Jens Burkhardt. Now, my name is George Gaskell. I'm an emeritus professor here. I'm sometime chair of the LSE's Literary Festival, which Richard was one of the more significant contributors. And I, I was pro-director sometime back, uh, 10 years ago, the Queen came to open the new academic building. I was in the welcoming party. And uh, that was when she famously said, uh, but why did no one see the credit crunch coming? That was in November, about, I think it was November the 5th, 2008. And then a group of economists wrote to the Queen on, it took until July to get the answer right. And they said, and I'm going to quote just one short sentence. It was a failure of collective imagination of many bright people, notice the modesty there, <laughs> to understand the risks in the system. Um, well, you know, today we may find out a little bit more about why it failed. So let me introduce the editors, and then I'll introduce our discussants. Richard Bronk, visiting fellow in the European Institute, and the author of The Romantic Economist, before his Pauline conversion to uh, academia, he had various positions in the city. He worked for Bering Asset Management and Merrill Lynch, and he was an advisor in the Bank of England. Jens Burkhardt is director of the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies. This year he was awarded a very prestigious Leibniz Prize for his work reinvigorating the social sciences with an interdisciplinary perspective at the intersection of sociology and economics. So there are uh, two editors of the book, and uh, Richard will be talking briefly about the content of the book. Now, the batting order is, after Richard has presented uh, a, a short statement around the book, our three distinguished discussants will comment on it. And I'm going to introduce all three of them now to avoid interrupting the flow of the evening. Lord Turner has a glittering array of roles in public life, including chairman of the FSA. He's chairman of the, new Insti uh, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. <coughs> and of relevance to this evening's discussion, he has a recent book, Between Debt and the Devil, published by Princeton. Uh, Ekaterina Svetlova is an associate professor in accounting and finance at the University of Leicester. Her career has taken her from the universities of Constance to Zeppelin and Basel. She uh, focuses on economic sociology and the philosophy of science, particularly emphasizing on modeling. She has a book published recently by Edward Elgar, Financial Models and Society. And we have Dr. Valtroj Skelka, Associate Professor in Political Economy here at the London School of Economics. She has connections with the Free University in Berlin, 
with the Institute for Contemporary German Studies in uh, John Hopkins University and has a recently published book, The Political Economy of Monetary Solidarity. Now, I'm going to invite Richard to speak a little bit about the book, but before then, may I ask you to turn off your mobile phones. I haven't turned mine off, so I better set a good example. And if there are any Twitterers in the audience, we have a hashtag LSE Economics. Uh, and this evening's event will be a podcast, providing there are no digital uh, upsets. So, Richard, over to you to introduce the book. Thank you, George, and thank you for all for coming. Now, I will not speak long, because Jens and I want mostly to discuss the points raised by our distinguished panelists this evening. But it may be helpful, I think, to kick off by outlining what our new book, Uncertain Futures, is aiming to achieve. Uncertain Futures considers how economic agents visualize the future and decide how to act in conditions of radical uncertainty. We start from the premise that dynamic capitalist economies are characterized by relentless innovation and novelty and hence exhibit an indeterminacy that cannot be reduced to measurable risk. In these circumstances, you can neither calculate the optimal course of action nor internalize the correct model of the economy as standard rational expectations theory assumes. To put it simply, when the world is uncertain, you cannot know what the best model will be and the past may not be a good guide to the future. The organizing question for us is then, how do you form expectations and decide how to act despite this uncertainty? Our headline answer is that in conditions of uncertainty, economic actors combine calculation with imaginaries and narratives to form fictional expectations that coordinate action and provide the confidence to act. To demonstrate this, we draw on research in economic sociology, economics, anthropology, and psychology to present a series of empirical case studies. The book consists of an introductory essay where Jens and I flesh out a theoretical framework and 13 individual chapters. Section one explores the nature of expectations in modern political economies. Robert Boyer examines the relationship between grand narratives and socioeconomic regimes and how sudden shifts in these narratives map onto periods of economic crisis. David Tuckett looks at the role played in financial markets by narratives and the emotions attaching to them. And Jenny Anderson explores how key players in the Arctic use narratives and scenario crafting to articulate their interests and establish rival claims. In section two, Werner Reichmann and Olivier Pilmis each examined the strange world of economic forecasting, how forecasts are formed, how they are used, and how forecasters explain away the errors to which their trade is so prone, while Andrew Haldane explores the use of agent-based models to understand economic systems that are inherently unpredictable thanks to strong feedback effects and the complex interaction of diverse groups of actors. 
In the third section, Douglas Holmes examines how central banks use narratives and forward guidance to cajole our expectations in line with policy goals and use two-way conversations with the public to access the stories that motivate us. Benjamin Brown then explores whether central banks risk succumbing to the pitfalls of central planning by seeking to influence long-term interest rate expectations. In section four, Elena Espositu and Natalia Bezodovsky each examine the extent to which risk and other financial models succeed in performing or constructing the future by constituting markets in their own image. They also discuss how the notion of risk used in financial markets ignores the radical uncertainty central to our argument. The final section of the book looks at how entrepreneurs and investors manage expectations in the innovative business areas where radical uncertainty is most prevalent. Martin Giraudot examines how venture capitalists use business plans and formal analytical methods to make their judgments. Liliana Doganava explores how discounted cash flow analysis organizes the assessment of imagined futures by combining rational calculation with scenario exploration. And finally, Timur Ergun discusses how innovative sectors balance the advantages of using an agreed roadmap to stabilize expectations and coordinate investment and the disadvantages this implies in foregoing a diversity of approach and valuable trial and error. As I hope will become clear this evening, Uncertain Futures argues that the market impact of shared calculative devices, social narratives, and contingent imaginaries underlines the rationale for a new form of narrative economics. This approach takes seriously the social construction and contingency of expectations and therefore market prices. And it recognizes that, especially in cases where objective probability functions are absent, the imaginaries and narratives that guide our behavior are often a function of market or political power. Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here uh, for the launch of this fascinating book. I think the issue of how human beings form expectations of the future is central to a lot of politics, but also to any good theory of macroeconomics. And that is why it is central in what I think still 82 years later is the single greatest work on macroeconomics, which is John Maynard Keynes' General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. And in the general theory, Keynes, and in particular in the great chapter 12 of the general theory, he explores how entrepreneurs or speculators form expectations of the future and what implications the unfixity of those expectations have for the way that the economy works. Indeed, he suggests that at times those expectations are will-of-the-wisps. They are so ethereal that they are rooted uh, almost uh, in nothing. And he also, in that suggests that the fundamental problem is that the world is governed by a fundamental uncertainty about the future. And indeed, although that idea is clear in the book, The General Theory, it is even more clear 
in the very simple crystallization of his thought, uh, which he set out in an article in the Quarterly Journal of Economics early in 1937, The General Theory of Employment, a simpler title, in which he really narrowed down his understanding of why the macroeconomy could be unstable to issues related to money and to uncertainty about the future and to money uh, as an imperfect mechanism by which we try to uh, manage uh, an imperfect relationship, an uncertain relationship between the future and the present. And at the core of Keynes's thought is a fundamental distinction between risk and uncertainty, which of course was set out very clearly by Frank Knight uh, in his famous essay on risk, uncertainty and profit. The distinction being between things which are subject to mathematical risk, at the simplest level there are a whole load of blue and red uh, beads in a jar, uh, there are a thousand of them, I, I take out a hundred, uh, what is the chances of the uh, distribution of that hundred being the same as the distribution in the jar, uh, we have completely robust mathematical theories to understand how samples relate uh, to universes from which we are sampling, and we can create precise mathematical statements uh, about those. But Keynes himself in the treatise on probability and Frank Knight said, actually an awful lot of the most important things that go on in economics and in politics and society are not subject to that mathematical risk. They are not risk, uh, they are uh, unfundamental uncertainty. That was, I think, a crucial insight, but what Keynes really doesn't do in any of his writing is attempt to take that back to a theory of how we generate these uncertain expectations of the future. He talked about it in general terms, but he did not try to root it back to a theory of sociology or cultural assumptions or narratives or uh, let alone uh, neuroscience. And so uncertainty and expectations were central uh, in Keynes, but in some sense uh, they were unexplained. Now later, a very, very different point of view uh, emerged about future expectations. And in part, it arose as a response to what were seen as the failures of post-war Keynesianism. Uh, Keynesianism post-war got formalized by people like John Hicks into a mathematical framework, the ISLM framework, and from it derived what some people have called hydraulic Keynesianism, and indeed there were models of the economy which were literally hydraulic, uh, in which we could say, well, if we put in public expenditure here, uh, output would come out uh, there. And various people in the early 1960s began to say, but the trouble with this is it isn't working and it isn't complete and it's problematic both in theory and in practice. It's problematic in theory because there are no micro foundations of these grand uh, macro relationships uh, between employment or public expenditure or private investment, but also it's problematic in actual practice because it fails to help us think about, in particular, how <coughs> inflationary expectations develop. It fails us to think about how people might change their expectation of the future because a particular agent does something today. And therefore, that the way that people uh, behave and the consequence of that action, uh, for instance, of an increase of public expenditure, might be changed by the very fact of an increase of public expenditure. And so we got instead the micro-foundation theory of the rational expectations hypothesis. 
And I guess if you tried to sum up the rational expectations hypothesis, you'd say that essentially it asserts that economic agents base their decisions on rational assessments of the probability distribution of future possible results, bringing to bear in that assessment all available information. They are scanning the future, they are bringing to bear all currently available information, uh, and they are doing it uh, in a rational fashion. And that theory was not just a theory, it has been an immensely influential theory, and an influential theory, almost a dominant theory, of much of neoclassical economics for the last uh, 40 years, and indeed has had a major influence on the way that people think about real-world practical policies. Uh, through its sort of son or daughter, the efficient market hypothesis, it suggested to us that we could rely on financial markets always to provide the best possible uh, price indication of the value of securities. It was seen by people as suggesting that the financial markets were in some sense inherently unstable, uh, sorry, unstable, because if they diverged from a stable path, processes of rational arbitrage uh, would immediately bring them back together. And it had a major influence, therefore, on the world that I lived in, in the financial stability world uh, of the world of financial regulation. It pervasively affected our point of view, and it pervasively affected a central bank monetary theory and monetary models uh, through what are called DGSE models. Let me give you one example of the way that it specifically influenced something, which I think was very important to financial stability in the sense that it helped to create financial instability. Uh, before the crisis, uh, banks, trading rooms of banks, applied a thing called a value-at-risk model. And what a value-at-risk model does is it surveys the recent or even, you know, not quite so recent uh, history of what has happened to price movements of securities. And it says, having sampled that, and having sampled how prices moved over every one-day or 10-day periods for all the one-day or 10-years periods over the last 10 years, I have a probability distribution which tells me what the universe of possible uh, movements in prices are, and therefore I can establish what is the probability of there being a two standard deviation or three standard deviation movement and I can base my, the amount of capital uh, that my banking system needs on the basis of that. But there are two problems with value at risk model. One was a sort of technical one that they simply assumed that the distributions were normal in their nature and fundamentally they did that simply to make the mathematics more tractable. But for more, far more fundamentally what they were doing there was assuming that the present is a sample from a given and stable universe, that there exists, as it were, a universal distribution of possibilities which has an objective existence from which any time period uh, is a sample, and that therefore you can infer the probability of future behavior from the past. Now, the trouble with this whole body of theory of the rational expectation theory and what followed from it is that it is not really well grounded in an understanding of human psychology or of the interaction of human beings in a society. 
which is a polite way of saying that it's a load of rubbish, which is a polite way of saying that it's completely barking mad. And one of the interesting things about the rational expectation hypothesis is if you describe it to an ordinary person who hasn't been polluted by the process of going through uh, an economics education and say, this is what the rational expectation hypothesis is. This is how you form expectations of the future. They will look at you and say, well, that's just not true. That's, that's not how I form uh, expectations of uh, the future. It is fundamentally problematic in its view of the rationality of human beings, but it is also fundamentally problematic in the sense that it assumes that certain reaction functions in society have a stability that, as it were, what happens in the next period will bear a close relation to what happened in the past. Mervyn King, in a very interesting lecture called Uncertainty in Macroeconomic Policymaking in 2010, argued, however, that there are probably few genuinely deep and therefore stable parameters or relationships in economics, as distinct from in the physical sciences, where the laws of gravity are as good an approximation to reality one day as the next. Now, if we had here an absolute state-of-the-art theoretical physicist, they will tell you that once you get to the quantum level, uh, physics may be as uncertainty as the social sciences. But as Mervyn said, the assumption that there is stability is a reasonable approximation if what you are trying to do is build a bridge or some other engineering task. You don't need to worry when you're doing that uh, about the inherent instability of physics at the quantum level. But I don't think that is true of economics when we are trying to work out how to run uh, a macro uh, economy. So we have a fundamental problem. We have a fundamental problem of uncertainty, of the unfixity of relationships, of the potential non-rationality, of human beings or imperfect rationality. And the crucial question then becomes, can we then say anything? Or are we just left saying, it's all uncertain, the future is radically uncertain. Can we provide better micro-foundations than the rational expectations hypothesis? And I think the answer is we can try much better, but we need to avoid a delusion. We can try much better by using the insights of psychology, philosophy, neuroscience, cultural analysis, sociology, to understand not only how individual human beings develop ideas about the world, including ideas about the future, but also how the interaction of people in societies determines the way that they think. And this is what this book is doing. It is doing it with many different insights drawn from different uh, writers. But I think the caveat that we have to have is that we will never, on this endeavor, I think, end up with a model, an answer, which is remotely similar to the rational expectations hypothesis. And we should not try to. Because the idea that there is an absolute given model, I think, is a danger in itself. And that is why I think it's quite right that this book has ended up not as one single author model, but an edited book of many insights from many different disciplines and points of view, which help us to understand what I think is a really fundamental issue in macroeconomics and in society. Thank you very much.
had slides. I had, if you're... Just press next if you on the screen. If you right click on the mouse, it will show you oh. next. Um, okay, thank you very much for inviting me and uh, giving me the opportunity to um, uh, talk about this great book. Um, and the book is great for me uh, because um, it uh, really allows us to depart from some conventions uh, to which we have been used in uh, economics and economic sociology. And maybe we've been bored for a while now. Um, so uh, I mean the conventions of asymmetrical information. And... Um, the idea of shared beliefs and homogeneity of expectations. Um, so the point of departure of the book is um, the situation of radical uncertainty as opposed to the situation of risk. Um, so it was uh, uh, described in detail uh, by previous speakers. Um, but um, this distinction uh, is really not in academic hair splitting. And the book shows in uh, great empirical details in some chapters that um, it allows us um, to think differently about the basic situation in which economic actors make decisions and form their expectations. So um, if uh, the future is radically uncertain, then um, there is no one party and no one economic agent uh, that uh, is in possession of full knowledge um, about the future. So we can talk only about partial knowledge uh, in economics, and uh, it means that the situation of asymmetrical information where one party knows kind of everything and the other party is uh, in possession of partial knowledge or is deceived even, uh, as in the case of uh, um, used cars in Akerlof's <coughs> Uh, might be obsolete, right? So we are really, uh, economic agents find themselves in the situation of symmetrical ignorance. And uh, this means that um, the future, uh, that our narratives about the future really have to be uh, negotiated uh, between uh, market participants or economic agents. Uh, they um, are co-created in those negotiations and discussions. And um, of course, at a particular point in time, uh, they might reach uh, at shared beliefs. <coughs> so shared beliefs uh, have been a focus on economic sociology for a while because uh, shared beliefs are believed to be uh, the precondition of action. <coughs> um, however, the book takes us farther and uh, shows that um, uh, there is a lot of uh, political battles and power uh, games around expectations. So beliefs are not always shared. And uh, it allows us to depart from a homogeneity of expectations that is uh, also related to radical expect the theory of radical uh, of rational expectations. Um, uh, but um, there is a heterogeneity of expectations uh, because of uh, those uh, battles and uh, um, disagreements, and it's clearly shown in the chapter by Jenny Anderson on um, Arctic futures, and also in the chapter by uh, Douglas Holmes on uh, conversations in central banking. Um, and uh, this thinking opens uh, an interesting avenue for future investigations, uh, because uh, completely new questions are um, 
not completely new, but uh, maybe neglected questions come up um, that are, have relevance not only for academics, but also for regulators um, and practitioners. Um, how to change uh, narratives? Um, and what narratives uh, really stick with people? Um, how people start to believe in particular narratives? And how do narratives shift? And, um, and also, um, um, so David Tuckett writes in his chapter in the book about convincing narratives, but how do narratives become convincing? Uh, which authority should be behind uh, this conviction? Um, and um, those questions are really not abstract, but have relation to uh, what happens in economics every day. And um, if you just open the newspaper, you uh, find a lot of examples. Uh, so a couple of days ago, Exxon uh, was alleged to deceive uh, uh, investors about the significance uh, of the impact that future climate change regulation uh, could have on the company's valuation. Um, right, so as I, they were alleged, uh, they were, um, alleged to uh, deceive investors um, about the severity of uh, climate change regulation that are um, for, for their valuation. Um, however, so the deception is just one possible perspective on the story. Uh, the other possible perspective on the story is that um, Exxon really believes to have so much lobbying power uh, that they can influence the narrative behind regulators' story about climate change. Um, so, uh, and they take into consideration uh, their lobbying power and uh, and calculate their value differently uh, because uh, this uh, battle of narratives uh, should be considered. So it's not just about calculation, uh, about numbers and models. Uh, it is um, really about uh, how uh, um, narratives are negotiated. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Exxon uh, was already involved in the struggle uh, over narratives about climate change. So at the beginning, of the, in the 80s, they participated in, the, uh, in, um, uh, in, the, in research about uh, uh, climate change and um, greenhouse gas emission. And uh, then they uh, claimed that models about climate change are extremely uncertain or um, outcomes of uh, model, climate models are uncertain. So, uh, and indeed, those outcomes are uncertain. Right? So uh, there is no party who can claim we really know how climate change will develop over the next uh, 40 or 50 years. Uh, so it is not Exxon trying to deceive someone, uh, but they use this uncertainty as um, an argument is in this narrative about, uh, in, in this power over narratives. And uh, I think that our chapters in the book really uh, provide us with tools and practical examples of um, uh, how, um, yeah, so this practice, uh, this um, battle of narratives uh, takes place and how we really can depart from uh, the theory of asymmetrical information to the uh, theory of symmetrical ignorance uh, in economics. Thank you.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's not often that you come across such a well-edited book. The only example I can think of is actually Hall and Soski's Varieties of Capitalism, because it's so, it has a framework. And at the same time, one has to say, you know, the intro, it is not, uh, it is not uh, monolithic and just trying to push forward one single view. The introduction gives you a very um, elaborate and sophisticated language uh, to, to describe the phenomena and analyze them uh, that the authors explore, namely uh, fundamental uncertainty and the ways agents deal with it. Um, and then suggests, as Adair Turner already has said, that we need to look for plurality of models and diversity rather than that nirvana of that one mainstream model that can catch it all. Um, and the volume practices what it preaches. Um, for instance, that this Jenny Anderson has a rather, I found, amusing chapter there, um, because it has the story about how the environmental threat for the Arctic Circle, which is massive, um, is narrated inter alia by the Swedish government. And that narrative stresses the deep and long-standing historical ties with the Arctic, conveniently downplaying that this was established through colonialism. And of course, that's amusing for those of us um, who always have this uh, niggling feeling that we can't explain countries like Sweden very well that have one goody-two-shoe government after the next, which is a total outlier in political economy, so we hate them. <laughs> it's also amusing because the, the, uh, she, Jenny Anderson, attacks directly one of the editor's uh, notion of narrative as strategic stabilizing uh, devices in an uncertain world. She's more interested in how narratives may actually trigger a destabilizing dynamic, in this case of environmental viability, that may be detrimental to the narrators themselves, that is Sweden. And another good example is uh, for the practice pluralism in this volume is that subversive chapter by Robert Boyer, uh, the first after the introduction, that can be seen as an antidote to large parts of the introduction. It says uncertain futures and the need for stabilizing narratives are not so much our destiny or ontologically given, but largely a result of financialized capitalism uh, with its trust in self-regulating markets and where the masters of the universe uh, generate a lot of uncertainty and then suddenly need uh, narratives to, to herd around the profitable investment opportunities. So I found this really quite um, interesting as well, and it directly addresses something that has been said by others. Now this brings me to the two grand themes of the book, on which I learned a lot. Um, first, the nature of uncertainty, about which my uh, previous speakers have also spoken, um, and second, how social sciences can make progress in understanding our coping with uncertainty. So first is nature of uncertainty. The claim about Nietzschean uncertainty is often an assertion that I find either a bit trivial. Uh, yes, of course, we don't know what the weather will be on a, any single day next year, or it's simplistic. Uh, we do not live or the world as we live it on a daily basis is not as uncertain as all that. Uncertainty is in a way not a salient social fact. We plan open air events for certain months of the year because we're pretty sure that in June the temperatures will not be below freezing point. 
right? So the real point about uncertainty or uncertain futures as the book portrays is that what generates uncertainty is not out there, like the weather, uh, but generated by the system itself. For example, through the way in which accounting rules register certain risks, but not others, which creates incentives to invest into those uh, uh, not accounted for risks. Or indeed, the weather becomes increasingly a product of our economic activity on the planet. Climate change is an endogenous uh, instability, as Earth system research can tell you. Now, what happens if we see uncertainty as endogenous, created by the system itself? There is this, uh, Haldane talks a lot about is this, you know, when we move from a world where we see uncertainty is something like the rocking horse, uh, the, the wooden rocking horse that may sh uh, rock a bit, but at some point it reaches an equilibrium and stands still again, versus a herd of wild horses where one of them we clap on the back. Does then only that one horse go out or all of them? In which directions? We don't know. So these are the two different worlds. Now, first, the good news, Ada Turner said it already, we can throw out practically all mainstream models of economics. That's very liberating, I think. Let, then let's substitute that with agent-based model. That's a bit of a misnomer, but never mind. Ecological rationality models, meaning diverse rationalities depending on the environment in which you are, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all great brain teasers. The mathematics is a bit daunting, but you clever clocks will probably learn <coughs> that and, and, and deal with it. The not so good news is, of course, that what about policy making if everything becomes so highly interdependent but also unpredictable, like a herd of wild horses when you give one a clap? The book, and that's one of its greatest strengths, provides us with several empirical examples of what, how we already deal with that situation. Because you, of course, cannot claim the whole world doesn't see what we see. In a way, there are already ways of dealing with it. And I talk about central banking because I happen to have done a bit of research on that myself. Haldane shows that macroprudential policies can actually narrow down the distribution of outcomes, in particular make the fat tails leaner. Holmes shows that central bankers do practically nothing but talk most of the time um, to each other instead of uh, uh, studying numbers because they want to reassure each other what is that thing that we call the economy out there, what does it produce in the future. They talk to markets instead of changing interest rates. Think of Greenspan, who was always just sitting on his, head, uh, on his hands and, and mumbled, which he admitted himself that he mumbled. And then they talk more and more to the public instead of just issuing their verdicts about where the interest rate should be set. Final chapter on this central banking is, to me, one of the best chapters, central bankers become ready to be the pump primers of the good old Keynesian days again, um, because uh, in, direct or in direct opposition to the role of uh, as executors of rational expectations equilibrium of recent decays, now they become pump primers replacing the fiscal authorities of the good old Keynesian days. And this has to do with the rational uh, uh, expectations uh, hypothesis. So, there are policy solutions, even in a fundamentally uncertain world, 
that become apparent, and the book presents you with cutting-edge research uh, on the various directions we can go, theoretically and practically. And this brings me second to that point, um, the grand theme of the book, how the social sciences can make progress in understanding our dealing with fundamental uncertainty. The book points with its, uh, with its contributions into two directions we can go. A, seek better microfoundations than rational expectations. For example, David Tuckett does this, and he's an advisor to the Bank of England. Or B, understand better how institutions can reduce, absorb, diversify uncertainty. Now, to me, the first, the micro-foundations way, to understand better the psychology of people and so on, is to me a continuation of mainstream economics as social physics, how agents really make decisions, and then we aggregate it up to the macro outcomes. Um, Halden has a wonderful quote. He says, from the behavior of the single uh, neutron, you will not understand, you will, it's totally uninformative about the threat of nuclear winter. Um, all we will find is that there are many ways of in how to be rational or irrational, and even if we, if we could uh, you know, narrow it down to a one-digit number of rationalities, it will not tell you how they interact. Now, most of that matters in any case, only this micro-foundation thing, if you want to forecast, and if you feel that urge, the book tells you, suppress that urge. Don't forecast. So I'm strongly in favor of the second approach, institutions. They include the heuristics that people regularly apply in dealing with uncertainty, and for which research uh, in the footsteps of kahneman Tversky is still very useful, but as institutions, not, I think, as, as really psychology of people. Advised economics is concerned. I have to be careful because George will otherwise cut me off. Forecasts are a series. That one of the articles shows, uh, the, the chapter shows Werner Reichmann. Uh, forecasts are a series of conversations among forecasters with models as a consistency constraint. So they, they narrow down their diversity, and so they have to come together to make it their different estimates consistent. But what they mostly do is having rounds of conversations about the, the numbers. <laughs> Or, given that we have these error-prone forecasts, how do they deal with it? Well, they create professional standards of how you do these forecasts, knowing bloody well that there will be errors and that they will never exactly forecast what it is, to replace outcome-based uh, standards so that they really have narrowly predicted the, the figures. And this Olivier Primis shows how similar that is actually to magical practices, um, that Marcel Mauss and such anthropologists have researched. Again, a very uh, interesting and enlightening chapter. This book confirms for these other areas, accounting, central banking, and so on, what I found in my own research on the euro area, namely that existing institutions embody a lot of wisdom by design and by default uh, on how they deal with uncertainty or risk. And I think social insurance, in a way, is the arch model of all this, the most important way of dealing with uncertainty. It's mandatory, so it forces everybody into what then becomes de facto a risk pool. Um, 
it's flexible in terms of the insured contingencies. It doesn't narrow down or fix in a contract what exactly can be insured and has a vastly bigger capacity to extend the risk pool by roping in, for example, future generations. Pay as you go is one of the greatest invention, inventions that I think mankind has ever made. So this research program to explain the enshrined wisdom of institutions just give us more or less constructive guidance as we feel our ways into these uncertain or alternative futures also make for a more humble approach of the social sciences to the world instead of always self-righteously telling the world that it should behave like our models tell it to do. We ask, we try to learn from the world how it deals with that uncertainty it creates for itself. Thank you very much. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I, I, we're assuming that you haven't had a chance to read this book, so we're going to have questions and answers in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, but the panel will uh, continue a discussion for a little while. So, um, you know, we, I think it was the great postmodernists who say there's an infinite number of readings of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. We don't have an infinite number of discussants. We've had three <laughs> imaginations on it. And uh, Jens, how, how do you respond to the uh, comments of the discussants? Shall I respond from here? Please. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much, first of all, for, for these uh, highly interesting uh, uh, and enlightened uh, Comments which I think give a good understanding of uh, different facets uh, of the of the book. Let me um, maybe start with uh, with Lord Turner, uh, who I think grasped very well the the intuition and and what is at stake uh, here, namely to find an uh, an alternative or a successor to rational expectations. Theory that this is indeed an unsatisfactory microfoundation of economics, and uh, and uh, I think that in one way or the other, uh, probably all contributions in the book uh, tackle with this uh, with this problem. And I think a, a second point is also, and I want to emphasize this uh, a little more. Uh, well taken, namely um, with your reference to the more classic authors in, in economics. So um, you cited uh, Keynes, uh, you, you referred to, uh, to Frank Knight, uh, but there are also uh, others. Uh, one immediately can think of Schumpeter, for instance, yeah, in, uh, in regard uh, to this, and of course, also um, to the, I think, vastly underestimated uh, uh, mid-20th century uh, British uh, economist George Shackle, yeah, who yeah. also uh, uh, tackles many of these issues uh, already. Yeah. Uh, so in a way, in, in, in this sense, we can build also yeah, on a lot, but it's a knowledge in, in, in economics that has been, I mean, either forgotten or, or suppressed. Now, um, uh, the the I think the specific the specific answer that is attempted by the contributors in this uh, in this book uh, 
to the to the question of where um, uh, expectations actually come from is to say that we that we need to understand expectations as a form of of narrative that relies on uh, on imaginaries of the future now this does not mean that uh, actors simply fantasize about the future it simply means that actors have to come to terms with a situation where the future is uncertain and although they can base, I mean, some of their considerations of known facts, there's always this, this um, what uh, 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 a German, uh, uh, actually literary theorist, yeah, has called a broken relationship to reality. Yeah? Since there are no future facts, yeah, you cannot know yeah, what the future will, will be like, and somehow you have to um, bridge this gap. And this is exactly where the imaginary or narrative um, aspect uh, uh, comes in. Now, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the central issues, which I think is also unresolved and more a research question, yeah, then uh, there's a full answer uh, in the book, is the one that was especially emphasized by Ekaterina, namely the question of what actually makes a story credible. Yeah? If the assumption is that uh, um, uh, expectations are not based simply on an, on an extrapolation of statistical knowledge that we know from the past, but that there is this um, additional element in it, yeah, then what is it that makes some stories stick, that makes some stories convincing, some stories credible, and others not? Yeah? And uh, uh, Ekaterina has, has mentioned some of the um, issues involved here, yeah? and especially, yeah, and this I want to re-emphasize, there is an element of power in this. Yeah? It is the social position of the speaker that makes a huge difference in the credibility of stories. Now that's not the only yeah, point, but it is one important point. And I think that this is also something that uh, brings an, in, an element yeah, into, into economics that is typically in, in economic thinking marginalized, namely the whole dimension of, of uh, of power, yeah, where rational expectations theory in its political dimension yeah, tells exactly that political interventions are useless because actors cannot be fooled with false expectations. Yeah, what comes up here is that expectations themselves can become a political means, yeah, a means of pursuing uh, interests yeah, that doesn't hold for all yeah, stories that they pursue uh, um, particularistic insight, but it can be yeah, used um, uh, this way. So the power dimension is important. Another point which was um, uh, also, um, which was especially, I think, uh, emphasized uh, in, uh, in Professor Schelke's uh, um, comment is the interactive dimension. Yeah? I think there is very interesting work which is uh, represented in the volume by economic anthropologists 
who look at the practices yeah, in forecasting institutes or by rating agencies, yeah, by simply observing these practices like you would go in laboratory studies to a, uh, to a laboratory and see what, what are these people actually doing in their practices. Yeah? And here it comes that it's not that models and calculation would be unimportant in this, yeah, they are important reference points. But what happens at the same time is this intensive exchange yeah, of ideas, of judgments, of perceptions yeah, with a broad variety of, of agents. And based on this, somehow a sense yeah, of what is happening yeah, is created in forecasting institutes that is then I mean, brought into uh, forecasting Prediction, but in I mean, if we if we think of uh, David Tuckett, yeah, who is working on financial markets, it is then brought into an investment uh, decision. Let me make one um, last point, which uh, which refers also to um, Walter Schelke's uh, uh, commentary, uh, namely the role of of institutions. Yeah, and here. I want to bring together what you said at the end of institutions with the chapter by Robert Boyer that you also, also cite. And I think the Boyer chapter is actually a very interesting chapter because it brings in a historical yeah, dimension. He is looking, I mean, Boyer comes from the regulation school. They are interested in long-term developments of, of capitalism. Here in this chapter, he looks at the golden age, yeah, post-war capitalism, and then what has happened actually with the liberalization uh, of markets since the 1970s or, or 80s. And his, his point is that he says in this highly regulated economy, actually, um, uh, these narratives play less of a role. But the more economies rely on, on markets and thereby create, um, I mean, um, a plethora of, of, of options, the more important these narratives become. Yeah? But <clears throat> these narratives then, I mean, he talks of um, whatever, the dot-com bubble yeah, or Japan in the 19, uh, 1980s, yeah, these kinds of, of narratives. These narratives then run against resistances, which means disappointments, and they become abandoned and then get substituted by the next, uh, by the next narrative. Yeah? And this, um, uh, the, the time span is so short that the institutions cannot even be changed in a direction that would allow such a socioeconomic model to, to, become, yeah, uh, uh, to become effective. And that resonates with um, something that Larry Summers actually said in the context of, um, of secular um, stagnation, where, where he says that, I mean, as a, as a bleak scenario, uh, uh, that the best we can hope for with regard to growth is in our economy, that we move from one bubble, yeah, which bursts into the next, into the next bubble, yeah, that we are not able to have um, growth models, institutionalized growth models, uh, and, and institutionalize them uh, in uh, a comparison in, 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 in a way that they bear institutionalized in the post-war um, uh, in a post-war uh, economy. Uh, so the role of institutions, of course, I think that is 
absolutely um, crucial, but we may live in an economy yeah, in which this institutionalization takes place um, to, uh, to a lesser extent than, uh, than it would maybe be, um, be desirable. Last um, remark, when you make um, insurance, yeah, or social insurance in a model, yeah, I think what one, um, what one has to add to this, I mean, this is, I, I agree with this, yeah, but one, what one has to add to this is that, I mean, a capitalist economy is characterized by its dynamics and by its novelty. And that means actors constantly need to yeah, creatively destruct yeah, and creatively destruct means also creatively destruct uh, institutions. And this is a process um, which, uh, uh, which leads to, uh, to, to a constantly um, uh, re-established uh, uncertainty uh, in, the, uh, in the economy. Thank you very much, Jens. <clears throat> Richard, do you have any uh, quick remarks? Um, yes, a few. Um, Thank you very much again for these, for these wonderful comments. I mean, I think to start with Adair's points about Keynes, um, I think one of, one of the paradoxes is that, I mean, uncertainty used to be very central to, to economics. Um, inter interestingly, not just Keynes, Hayek. Yeah. Mm. Um, they disagreed about almost everything, but the one thing they agreed on was that the economy is, rad is very uncertain. Um, and, of course, they took very different views about what you did as a result of that. So Keynes took the view that you, therefore, needed to try and stabilize expectations, and the state had a role in that, and fiscal policy a role. Uh, Hayek took the point of view that because the, the, the economy is so uncertain, the state never knows enough to intervene uh, um, in a way that's successful to stabilize expectations and that you need market prices to reflect the decentralized um, ability to spot emerging patterns and the decentralized knowledge that was the best way of dealing with that uncertainty. But the point was they both took uncertainty as the starting point of their, their theories. Um, and this was not surprising because they were writing in the 30s, straight after the, um, the, the Great Depression and, and, uh, and the Great War and, and so on. The interesting thing in recent economic history, I think, is that is that uncertainty has been written out of the script until the last five or so, five to ten years, at precisely the point when, as, as Jens said, um, econ economic systems have become more and more radically innovative, um, more and more financialized, and more and more globally interdependent, and therefore complex in their interdependencies. And these three factors, the role of innovation, um, breaking the predictable links between the past and the future, complexity of, 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 of interactions and so on actually mean that uncertainty is more important in the, in the real world than, than, than it was in the days of, 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 of Keynesian planning in the, in, the, in the 50s and 60s. So that, that's the first point I wanted to make. Um, I think, it, it, again, Adair is absolutely right that what we're trying to do is to fill out the content of what expectations actually look like when economic agents are trying to make sense of, of, of uncertainty. Um, and it's critical to our view that they combine calculation with imaginaries and narratives, but in particular they combine uh, uh, the use of models and calculation as a way of trying to diagnose emerging patterns as opposed to trying to predict the future. So it's a use of models in a very different way 
um, from how um, it is often presented that economists use them. Uh, fund managers do this all the time. They use a series of different models and ways of thinking about markets to try and diagnose what might be happening and, and emerging. And it's critical then not to focus on, in on one model only, but to use a, a variety of models, not to succumb to the dangers, as we call it, of, of analytical monocultures. Um, to pick up on a point that Ekaterina made, which I think is, is a central part of what we're trying to say here, is we are not talking principally about the shortcomings of knowing agents in the ability, their ability to know what's going on. We're not talking about bounded, bounded rationality. We're not talking about cognitive biases and framing biases. Very important though they are, um, we are talking about radical indeterminacy. Um, behavioral economics has made great strides in bolting onto its central models a set of predict predictions you can make about cognitive biases or the role of information asymmetries and so on. That's fine, but from our point of view, it doesn't get to the central problem, which is how you understand radical uncertainty in the way agents deal with it. Um, so that was the second point I wanted to make. Um, I think in terms of David Tuckett's argument, to come to Valtraud's point, I think the defense he would make if he was here himself is that, uh, to, your, to your point, is that it's central to his argument is that there's a contingency to narratives. That there isn't one narrative that makes sense of a situation. There are many that could make sense. And which one is important at any point is essentially a contingent product of, <laughs> of, of, of how individuals happen to imagine the power dynamics and, and, and so on. Um, and the final point I wanted to make is about... Um, uncertainty being endogenous um, to the system. Um, it's not just that the economic system is driven by innovation, the first order innovations, if you like, the first order uncertainty that innovations cause. Think of, think of the ability to predict the current world before the internet was invented. You know, this changed so much. Okay? But the point is, it's not just the uncertainty caused by any particular innovation. It's then the uncertainty about the action-guiding expectations and creative expectations that people will have in response to that innovation. So there's uncertainty about the interpretations that people will make in this dynamic situation. And this, this self-reinforcing uh, uncertainty is, is central. But it doesn't mean, critically, that we have no clue about the future. And that is a very important theme in, in our book, is that just because the world is uncertain doesn't mean we have no clue about what's happening. In practice, we have to calculate as best we can. We have to use models creatively to try and to, to make sense of the stable constraints that are there, to spot emerging patterns and so on. What we can't do is arrive at a definitive best prediction of what's going to happen. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Richard. Okay, uh, well, let's have a Q&A, but I, I think if I may, I'll exercise chairman's privilege and ask a question myself. So I'm thinking about uh, Thomas Kuhn's uh, scientific revolutions. And Kuhn talking about uh, scientific revolutions was saying that the paradigm of today is replaced only when a competing paradigm explains the anomalies and not merely explains the anomalies, but it has in a sense, the power of uh, popular support. So what I'm hearing here is that the current paradigm in economics is bust. 
But we have a book which has a number of different alternative suggestions as to the future. So my question, and probably it's not really a serious question, is what's going to happen to the discipline of economics in the meantime? You know, the LSE has a big economics department, etc., etc. You know, are we going to have 15 years of trying out different paradigms? <coughs> so I just make that as an observation. We're here to discuss economics, not philosophy of science. A question at the back. Yeah, my question is a bit related to what... Could you just uh, say who you are? Oh, yeah. Uh, my name is Fabian, and I work in climate change economics. All right. And my question is a bit related to your latest remark. Um, so, <coughs> so let's say you read this book and you came to the conclusion that the current models are close to useless and we could actually do better. And now you get the keys to the central bank or the treasury, and you, you could overturn every assumption, every model there is, and you, you could have one or two years' time but in the end, you need to produce a forecast for the economy in 2030. What would you do? I'm going to take three questions at a time. We have one over here beside Professor Goodhart. Thank you. So, uh, David Tuckett, I'm one of the authors. But as, as such, I'd just like to say that really the most important part of this book is the introduction by Jens and, and uh, Richard. It really is, to my way of thinking, an exceptional uh, piece of work, as it was exceptional to be edited by them, because Richard particularly, who dealt with me, maybe it was Jens as well, you know, was willing to tell you how to write each word, and that was very, very helpful. So, but what, I, what I'd like to stress is... Is this a question or is this an advertisement? Here's a question. Here's a question. <clears throat> That I think the central idea in, in your ideas is the thing about the imaginary. And that is both the central idea and the thing that's newest. Because isn't it the case that by making it imaginary, you, you bring about the fact that whether it's models or expectations or narratives, they are efforts to try and imagine something, but they are not the same thing as what they're trying to imagine. Okay, third question. Gentleman, right at the back. Uh, I'm Sebastian Diesen. I'm a PhD student in the European Institute. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this attempt of creating a, I allow myself to call it constructivist economics. Um, and I think this, by way of doing that, tells us a lot about economics and sociology. I'm a bit less sure what it tells students of politics or even better yet, politicians. And I think a, a good case study would have probably also been looking at a political party and how parties create these narratives and of a better future. Of a better future. So I guess my question would be, um, what can politicians make of the insights of this book? Um, well, there, there are some really fascinating questions. I mean, the first thing I think we say in answer to George is that we don't argue for one new paradigm. Um, there is no one paradigm that understands the economy. Standard economics is actually a very fruitful paradigm. We don't in one sense argue with it for understanding how uh, rational actors behave in conditions of stable parameters. Unfortunately, that doesn't include financial markets and it doesn't include macroeconomics, but it's still a very fruitful, um, a very fruitful way of, of, of looking 
at um, many, many problems. Um, and so for, for us, the, the point is to try and complement standard economics with alternative approaches to understanding uh, decision-making in, in, in conditions of uncertainty. Um, and in terms of Kuhn, actually, this is, a, again, a, a point that comes to Boyer's chapter, the second chapter, where he looks at the role of grand narratives. It's a very French um, way of, of thinking about things. The grand narratives that organize certain socioeconomic regimes in different decades in the last... And the, the point is, each narrative has weaknesses. And at a certain point, those weaknesses overwhelm it. And there's then a narrative revision, which takes the form of a, res a, a dramatic reset of expectations and takes the form often of a financial and economic crisis. Now, the, the world doesn't have to work that way. If you don't succumb to an analytical monoculture at any particular point, then the, world, then the, the markets are much less likely to be succumbed to one uh, a grand narrative and then a, a, a sharp narrative revision to a new one. And that comes perhaps to the policy point. Um, what, do, what does a policymaker actually do? With, do? Doesn't, does he not have to give their, their, their minister whatever the forecast, the, the model? Uh, and here I'd, I'd um, make a provocative comment about uh, the famous comedy program, Yes, Minister, um, which I think was one of the finest comedies ever written and also a constitutional disaster. Um, because what policymakers used to be given 30, 40 years ago was on the one hand, on the other hand, Minister. On the one hand, one set of models tells you this. On the other hand, another set of models and ways of looking at the problem tells you this. And you, Minister, or you, citizen civil servant, you have to make a judgment call about what in these circumstances is the most important aspect that you need to take into account. And I think we've moved away from that in much of the way business operates and in the much of the way, the way that uh, policymaking operates towards what uh, my colleague Michael Power calls the logic of auditability, where policymakers want to be given one answer as a result of the forecasting methodology inherent in their department that tells them and covers their back as to what they should do. Um, and that uh, the role of judgment for us is crucial in judging between the relative merits of diverse, uh, diverse models. Um, and uh, politics. Our book is about economics, it's not about politics. But I think a central theme in the book, which is the more uncertain, this is a point David makes and, and Robert Boyer, the more uncertain the situation, the more agents tend to navigate to navigate towards simple and beguiling narratives that make them feel more comfortable and more confident with what's going on, clearly has a certain applicability to current political situation. Um, it may not be coincidence that it's periods of great economic uncertainty that lead to populist um, love affair with very simple narratives. And you can all think of the ones we might have in mind, taking back control, making America great again, or whatever. Right, let's press on. Now, my lord, you had a question to... Um, no, I, I, wanted, I, I, I just wanted to say two things. On this issue of a model and Kuhn's idea that you'll only replace one model with another, I, th I think we face a fundamental problem that we're not going to get in economics a model as equivalent to the rational expectations hypothesis. And the attempt to do so would be an intellectual bad project and would produce a bad result. 
But this is very difficult in terms of winning the argument because peer-reviewed journals and academic uh, departments like models. And there are people out there uh, submitting articles to major peer-reviewed journals who are asked to specify how what they have said fits in with the rational expectation model, uh, including people who are attacking the rational expectation model, which is a wonderfully Kafkaesque question of how an attack on the rational expectation model fits within the rational expectation model. But I do think we have a fundamental problem. And, and in INEP, which I chair, I think we're very clear that we can't be about creating a project, we, a, a completely new model. We have to accept that economics should not give itself to the absolutism, the, the, the certainty of physics. I mean, I think John Maynard Keynes said that the, the economist must be mathematician, philosopher, historian, and statesman to some degree. I, I also think that he probably thought there was only one economist who was ever going to meet that criteria. Um, uh, but, but, you know, it, it has to be a very wide discipline. But I did want to just say something on what Dr. Schelker said and, and what Jens responded earlier. I think this issue of whether we have created an economy in which the potentially destabilizing impact of fluid narratives is greater than it needs to be because we have over-financialized it and over-marketized it is a very important issue. And essentially, we did that partly under the impact of raw lobbying and economic interest, but we also did it under a, a, a very important other bit of the dominant economic ideology, which is the idea of market completion, which goes back to Kenneth Arrow and, and Gerard de Brewer, and the idea that if only we had contracts for everything, then the world would be an optimal and a stable and a perfect space. And I can tell you that, having been in the financial regulatory environment, that philosophy of market completion as an end in itself is, is sort of has, has gone into the assumption set of people uh, writing real-world policies. But I think it is, it is probably wrong that it is undoubtedly true, per Arrow and de Brewer, that in an absolutely perfect world of perfect people and perfect information, you could, by having a contract for everything, uh, create a more efficient and stable situation. But in the real world, it may well be that the more we have a capacity to, to write all the financial instruments we want and then to reverse out of them immediately if we want, and Keynes has a lot to say about the dangers of too much liquidity, uh, the ability to reverse a contract once you've made it, I think it is highly likely that we went down a path which created a greater vulnerability to unstable narratives than was required. And therefore, to a degree, I agree with Dr. Schelkel that part of the response is not to try and precisely understand what these narratives are, but to understand that we can make ourselves institutionally more robust to the inherent fluidity of narratives by actually not overdoing uh, the marketization uh, and the financialization of the economy. But the challenge is that you need some degree of marketization and even financialization, a role of the financial sector, to have a dynamic economy. I think I could imagine an environment in which the macroeconomy would be deeply stable and unaffected 
uh, by changing narratives. It would be a feudal economy of subsistence farmers um, who, in working as long as they were in a relatively stable climate, um, their expectations of the future would be completely stable, the poor peasantry, which is that they were going to be as poor next year uh, as they are today, uh, and that in 30 years' time there'd be exactly the same products uh, as they are today. So we can describe a completely stable economy, and the market economy you know, did bring with it um, you know, greater entrepreneurship, greater dynamism, uh, which has created some great benefits. But that doesn't mean we want to marketize everything. And I think there is a reasonable argument that from about the 1960s or 70s onwards, we took a reasonable balance of a capitalist economy and a balance of markets and states, and we just spent 30 or 40 years trying to do a sort of market completion exercise, and that actually it created a hell of a lot of instability. Katerina, you had a comment. Yeah, just uh, to answer maybe as a question about politicians, um, Said, uh, I would say what this book uh, does um, for politicians is first it might relativize for them the role of models in general, right? So um, that model is, the book shows that um, models are not just used to make the next prediction; they are always combined with narrative and judgment. And um, so this uh, is a very important insight. Number one and number two. Um, it, uh, the book allows politicians or central bankers uh, and so on to ask different questions. Um, as I said, uh, it is, of course, they've cared about the narratives all the time at central bank, but uh, it makes them conscious about uh, such questions, how uh, to create a convincing narrative, uh, how narratives stick with people. And um, so to pay attention to uh, kind of different questions uh, than before, maybe. Thank you. Further questions? In the front row here. There's a... Yes. Okay. Thank you. Michael Anderson, uh, adjunct professor at Copenhagen Business School. Uh, first of all, congratulations with the book. I look so much, so much forward to reading it. Um, there will be copies outside for you to buy. Excellent, excellent. That was just what I was going to ask about. Now, um, uh, looking at extreme contingencies, outlier contingencies, uh, that, that's interesting in my view how, how you see that. And uh, I would start by making reference to Nobel laureate Kahneman, who uh, once said that we are blind to our own blindness which I think is an interesting observation speaking about micro-foundation. And secondly, we have uh, the notion of black swan from uh, Nassim Taleb. So those two uh, theoretical uh, uh, people uh, have dealt with uh, the notion of outlier uh, situations. And uh, how are you dealing with that in the book and how do you see your framework um, in that context, is that something that goes outside uh, the framework of, of what you are dealing with? Thank you. Uh, question down here. Thanks, Jonathan White from LSE. I, I was uh, at some point wondering um, who should be absorbing the lesson about the uncertain future. Clearly one answer to that question would be all of us. 
as individuals or as collectives should be a little bit more self-doubting, aware that things may not be as we expect, a sort of uh, a prescription of uh, humility before the future. I guess another answer would be that uh, absolutely not. Um, history is not made by those who believe in uncertain futures. We should be just as committed as we ever have been to our sense that we know where we're going and that we have good reasons for persevering. The point is rather to design a system that uh, does not freeze in any one person's or one collective's idea of their future. In other words, it should be at the more systemic level that we recognize uncertainty of future. But there's no need for any individual in that system or any collective to be uh, any more self-doubting or uh, reflective than they would be otherwise. Who, who absorbs this lesson? Is it for the parts or for the system? I thought, thank you for that question. I thought you'd answered it, but you did end up with a better question. <coughs> Question in the third row. Um, it has been very interesting. Uh, I'm uh, Talia Mayoglu, a social psychologist, and uh, my question has to do with the notion of time because uh, I didn't have the pleasure to read the book yet, so I understood that there is one chapter that uh, has a very historical perspective and that some of the examples that are used might refer to the past. But uh, when uh, the different authors talk about the future, uh, what is the, how, <laughs> how far does it go? Uh, is it like 2030, as uh, a colleague has mentioned? And um, the second part of my question is that uh, it somehow seems that we talk about uh, some uh, positive futures, uh, despite the uncertainties. Um, and not dystopian futures, but we have, like in the arts and other expressions, a lot of uh, dystopic images. Um, thank you. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I would like to, to respond to some of the issues, and, and, and maybe I start with this, uh, with this issue on, um, on, on time. And I think the, the first uh, point here is that, yes, I mean, this perspective brings time in. Yeah, and I say this. Um, uh, Loturna has, has talked about Aero de Broglie, and, and the, I mean, the interesting aspect of their, or one interesting aspect of their model is that there is no time anymore. Yeah? Uh, and, uh, and that also means yeah, that uh, um, there is no, uh, no innovation in the sense that, I mean, everything that's in the future is already known in the present, so that all exchange can actually take place at one point in time. And I think that's such, I mean, I was, I was surprised. I mean, I've never heard in this, in this boldness that you say that this is actually the ideal, yeah, that, that regulators in financial markets go after. Yeah? And I mean, that is, uh, I think, only from this perspective already a very Dystopian, uh, dystopian idea, and, and here, I mean, by talking about about futures, yeah, I mean, they, I mean, we, we argue for uh, for, for 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 thinking about the economy specifically with an understanding of um, of time uh, of time in uh, in it. Now, um, uh, this is um, I, I don't think that. The message of the book is that the futures we have in mind are dystopian uh, futures. I would argue yeah, that I mean, if we want to understand 
capitalist development and wealth development over the last 200 years, we have to understand that these imaginaries yeah, are triggers yeah, for economic growth. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you think of the Schumpeterian entrepreneur, yeah, this is the person who thinks yeah, in Schumpeter's notion, yeah, about combinations that never anybody yeah has thought about before and puts it into practice. Yeah, this is yeah um, a corner, so yeah, of uh, of cap, but also of crisis. Yeah, and it's these two elements which come uh, which come together here. Now. Uh, let me um, uh, let me also respond to your um, question with regard to to black swans, or as the um, uh, the, the famous American philosopher Donald Rumsfeld yeah, has said, yeah, the un- unknown unknowables, yeah, exactly that all comes. I think this is exactly very much at the center. Yeah, of this book, because we talk about these radical uncertainties, yeah, or fundamental uncertainties, exactly situations, yeah, which where, where you, um, which are not part of a of a probability, yeah, set, and uh, and somehow we have to cope uh, with them and uh, and uh, and include um, and include them. Now, um, maybe um, a last remark. Uh, on the very first uh, question, which was somewhere um, uh, back, and I wrote here down, I mean, uh, the, the question uh, with regard to climate change, um, could we actually do better? And I think it would be a grave misunderstanding of the book, yeah, if you would say the message we are giving or the authors of the book um, are giving is we now know how to, how to make better economic predictions. Yeah, The book is much more about developing a sensitivity for the limitations yeah, of, economic, uh, of economic predictions and thereby also shifting yeah, our thinking with regard to the function of such uh, predictions, that their function is not yeah, to predict the future. That is what yeah, I mean, they, they claim to do, but the actual function uh, of this is to coordinate activities, yeah, but um, but also yeah that they have a performative yeah or self-fulfilling yeah uh, process. I mean the, um, the central banks we talked, Katarina talked about about central banks. They have probably the, the the greatest sensitivity for this. That with their forecasts and the statements they make about um, about their future monetary policy decisions. The attempt is not any kind of prediction, but to shape actually the perceptions in the market or the expectations in the market. Yeah? And this, um, this is the element that we want to bring uh, and the authors want to bring uh, forward. Could I just very briefly say something on this point? I would, however, still say, I mean, one problem of central banks was that they, until the crisis, had models with no financial markets in it uh, because it would have upset the single equilibrium that they needed for their forecast. I mean, it's a bit that syndrome that Richard has talked about before. you know, the, the only uh, central bank that could manage without this was, of course, the Bank of England because it had Charles Goodhart for a long time, and that is perhaps tells you something. That's the institution that replaces that, but not everybody has a Charles Goodhart. Can I just come back to Jonathan's question, which I think is a really interesting one about who should internalize this, uh, this uncertainty? 
And we're not asking, uh, suggesting that everyone should be basically a gibbering wreck and just um, uh, unable to act because of uncertainty. Indeed, one of the things that David looks at in his chapter is how narratives are an absolutely essential way for us to gain enough conviction to act. And I think, but the, and, and a lot of what we look at is a trade-off between the value of stabilizing expectations enough to get action and investment and so on, uh, and the dangers then of actually not having enough diversity of thought and trial and error and so on. And I think one way of mediating this is to say that individuals need to have enough conviction to act in individual firms, but at system level, it's extremely dangerous if they become susceptible to what we call an analytical monoculture. And one um, thing that I would pick out here as a danger is the whole theory of best practice. The whole theory of best practice tends to have this, this normative idea that there is one right way of doing things that all the different actors should internalize. And that's, I think, where you get into difficulty. And in a sense, markets work best when people have different coping strategies and different ways of looking at, at the uncertain future. But I agree with you, they need enough conviction to act. Now, I think on that point, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I see it's a minute past eight, and I believe we are supposed to draw to a conclusion at eight o'clock. So I would like, on your behalf, to thank our two editors of the book, Richard and Jens, and our speakers, Waltrude, Ekaterina, and Adair Turner, for their comments, and thank you for your questions and your attention. Uh, have a good evening.